Hello and welcome to the Bottom Line News and Views. I'm Eddie. And I'm Matthew. This is our first ever podcast episode. So basically, we started this so that we can talk about mainly two things, politics and business. And uh, we do believe that we can actually put them together in one type of podcast. Wouldn't you agree? Well, you try to limit it. I try, my entire life goal is to make you expand this podcast as much as humanly possible, because I find that funny. How diversified of you. <laughs> so, yeah, and throughout the process, basically, as we go on episode by episode, we will diversify just for Matthew and just for your sakes. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, welcome, everybody. So, let's begin talking about the U.S. Republican primaries race of 2024. And um, I'm sure everyone heard, and just in case you did not, uh, Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and former U.N. ambassador under the Trump administration, just announced that she's running for president. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the second announcement, actually the first time someone is announcing that uh, he or she is running against Donald Trump. The first official announcement. Yeah. What do you think about that, Matthew? I think she has no chance in hell. <laughs> Why is that? Well, let's talk about the big, uh, the big bull, uh, what's the word? The elephants in the room. That's the word. And this is Republican, so it's pretty, pretty, uh, a pretty apt description. The big two are going to be DeSantis and Trump, in my opinion. There's likely going to be a good seven or eight people running and like really running. But it's going to be between those two, or very possibly it's going to be a third person who gets evangelicals, uh, the evangelical vote. At this point, it's hard to know. It could be Ted Cruz for the evangelical, or it could be uh, Mike Pence. But the big two to look at are DeSantis and Trump. So just to go back to Nikki Haley for a second, and then we'll talk about the voter base, because I do think it's much more geographical than that. Unlike the Democrats, the Republicans are not changing the chronology of their primaries. Yes. So their first primary is still Iowa. And so I agree with you, over there, the evangelical base is going to be quite important. And that's the base, literally, that did not vote for Donald Trump. And infamously, back in, I believe it was 2020, he literally told them, uh, how stupid do the people of Iowa have to be yes. for not voting for him? So... Um, I do think someone like uh, Ted Cruz or Ben Carson is needed to win Iowa. It's definitely not going to be Donald Trump, even though they voted for him in uh, 2016, right? Uh, during the general election. But as time has shown us, the Iowa caucuses are not anymore the primary indicator of who's going to be the nominee. Because someone like Governor DeSantis or Donald Trump could lose Iowa. In the last poll, I saw that uh, DeSantis was leading Trump in Iowa, but that doesn't mean anything. Yes. I would say for the Republicans, Iowa is less important, but I think, I'm just going to be honest, I think it was a mistake to change it for Democrats because I think yeah. Iowa is the, the moderate, where the moderates drive. And the moderates tend to win more often presidential elections than, uh, than the actual more extreme people. So what happens is you end up with uh, automatic moderation. In, in Iowa. So I think for Democrats, it's more important. But for Republicans, it's sort of, it's already their base. I, I disagree with that. I like the fact that they, the Democrats have changed it to South Carolina because it's much more representative. Keep in mind, uh, you can argue that they're much more 
even though they're, though they're Democrats, they are much more conservative in South Carolina than Iowa, right? Um, in terms of um, population who's voting. But uh, also, um, I think the biggest issue isn't whether it's Iowa or whatnot. I think it's the voting system that the uh, American states tend to have. So this idea of Nevada or Iowa caucuses is complete bullshit, in my opinion, because the caucus, if uh, you if you don't know uh, how it is, is you go by raising your hand, and then if you're the candidate you're choosing does not get first place, you got to vote for someone else. Yeah. Um, so, and they do it in like gyms or school courts or whatnot. Um, I think it's a very passe way of yes conducting elections. Whether yeah. like I, I personally think in the primary election, let those people vote once and then that's it. Yeah, it screams like something that was made in the 1800s mm. and it was a very legitimate way back then. Mm. But sort of like the time has moved on. There's more, there's more efficient ways of doing it. I think in some small, super small areas, it makes sense. So if you want to do this for, say, a statewide race, so say if you're running for the, uh, the house or something like that, I can see it being having use there. But I don't think it has a direct use in the presidential primary system. Mm. I can see in more local races that are having uses. Yeah, and uh, in Canada, uh, basically for nomination races or even leadership races like the Conservatives, uh, uh, not too long ago, actually, in 2022, uh, where Pierre Polio won 69% of the votes, they had preferential nice. voting, right? They had preferential voting in which it's uh, ranked ballot. It's actually slightly more complicated than that. Yeah. And I'm just going to explain it for some of our non-Canadian viewers, or even some of our Canadian viewers who don't mm. quite understand it. Right. Uh the way it works is they're sort of like you hobble the the more uh, the conservative base mm. system in the conservative party, where it's basically it's by district. So say there's 338 uh, districts in Canada, ridings in Canada. So each riding ends up with roughly one vote. Mm. And the way it works is that it doesn't matter if there's a thousand people who are members or three people who are members in the riding. Each riding gets one vote. Mm. And this sort of creates a point system. Yeah. Where which creates the final the final person who wins. So what happens is in Quebec we have very few uh, provincial uh, we have very few conservative people who are uh, members. But there's a lot of conservatives in Quebec, of the, the federal parliament. Oh yes, talking about. federal. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's very few official members of the conservative party. So what ends up happening is a conservative in Quebec has more power than a conservative in Alberta. Hmm. And this was done on purpose in the early 2000s as a way to stop. The Conservative Party from being the Alberta Regional Party. Mm. It'd be more of a Canadian, full Canadian party. I, I mean, um, with regards to geographical representation, we can come back to that, right? Um, you can argue it doesn't work, but that was the initial yeah. goal. So uh, I'm uh, usually not of that mindset, particularly because, let's say, in the last federal election, Conservatives did gain a few seats in Quebec, right? I, I personally think uh, during a federal election in Canada, the two provinces, like nowadays, that are really ba battleground are British Columbia and Ontario. It tends to be a pretty close three-way race right now, according to the polls. Ontario, uh, the lead, the liberal lead is uh, becoming much, much shorter, right? Um, but going back to the Republicans uh, in the United States, who are nothing like our conservatives, eh? They're they're different. Uh, mm. I'll say that. Yes, uh, they're not beholden by a specific um, idol. I would say uh, that they tend to worship, especially with uh, the latest Pew uh, poll came out 
70% of Republicans still approve of Donald Trump, even though it's uh, decreasing, I'd say a little too slowly, which is very surprising compared to the Nixon era, right? But I do think Nikki Haley brings a different. He's already started attacking Biden and Trump at the same time on their age by saying that we need a new generation of leadership. And she is a female candidate. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because it's quite significant in the States compared to other democratic countries who have already had a female leader elected. Uh, and historically, if you look at other democracies, female leaders tend to be much more successful during elections on the federal side uh, amongst conservatives. So in other words, uh, conservative female leaders tend to get elected yes, compared right. to more uh, progressive ones do not. Margaret Thatcher, Merkel, yeah. generally, if if women are elected, they're only in the conservative side. Golda Meir. Exactly. Um, well, Meir Kim was, Campbell. And Golda Campbell. Meir was actually a member of the Socialist Party. Mm. She was uh, she was the closest anyone ever came to winning an outright majority in Israel. Right. Something that you can't even imagine today. No, forget it. Yes. Uh, too many parties, right? So... Nikki Haley, in terms of South Carolina, you don't really hear much about what she has done, other than uh, how she dealt with shooting, um, as well as the Confederate flag fiasco. Uh, I think she's a political opportunist. So I do think that in terms of track record, you don't know where she really stands. Mitt Romney had that issue when he was the nominee. So I think if she were to ever become the Republican nominee against Joe Biden, assuming he'll run, and let's be honest, he, he will run again, she would constantly be labeled as a flip-flopper. Because she, if Trump, whenever Trump became president, she immediately changed her views uh, to support him and all that stuff. And now she's suddenly indirectly attacking Donald Trump. I think that's going to help Donald Trump, though. Yes. She is, she's not going to be able to remove her resume from Donald Trump. Yeah. It's why I don't believe she really has a chance against him. Because at the end of the day, he can always come out the line, I appointed you, you only exist because of me. And that's it's sort of a an issue she's going to have where it's a line of attack Trump has been fairly good at. Where just like, I made you type of attack. Like Hillary Clinton, when he went after her saying he funded her campaigns and all that stuff. It was... It was no, that didn't stick. It did in the minds of Lost-wing voters. Mm. So basically, it, it was the idea that Trump was the, the outsider who knows the system because he essentially was the person who donated money. It, it, it stuck in the minds of lost-wing voters. Partisans, it didn't, like one way or another, didn't really stick. But it did hurt lost-wing voters for Hillary Clinton. Mm. Yes. Now, that's not necessarily why he won. I don't want to expect um, Yeah. Sort of. I think uh, in the, on the American side... Uh, it's really, really difficult to be undecided as much as here. So I'm of the opinion usually that even the undecided voters are leaning towards uh, two top choices two weeks in the election. Like it's, I don't think you're as undecided till the last day of election day. It's very possible you change your mind because you started really hating that person, uh, which actually is what happened in 2016. A lot of people... Uh, because of Bernie Sanders' aggressive branding of Hillary Clinton as a corporate Democrat, that really stuck with her, allowed Bernie's supporters to go to Trump 
Also, he also took a very long time, three months to endorse her, which actually basically helped it play into Trump's narrative. Yeah. Because she was being labeled as a corporatist and yeah. Trump could say, say, I bought you. But uh, Nikki, in Nikki Haley's case, the same can't be said unless, um, of course, she pulls a huge uh, etch-a-sketch type of uh, anecdote back uh, very similar to how Newt Gingrich attacked Romney in 2012 during the Republican primaries, uh, comparing him to Natchez Sketch. I do believe it was Newt Gingrich, who, for some reason, he also re- hit the reset button uh, because he was uh, Bill Clinton's speaker. Um, <laughs> he was the speaker who impeached him. Yeah, for real. So um, it's very interesting how um, it's, it's going to play out in terms of hitting the reset button with a Natchez Sketch. Uh, what's what, what was also really interesting about Nikki Haley's uh, campaign ad, uh, I do think it was a very effective ad. She not only introduced slash reintroduced herself on who she was and is, uh, she brought up the fact that she's from Indian parents. She's Indian herself. I, I did not know that both of her parents were Indian. I knew that she had some Indian mix, right, which would be quite historic. Um, and the fact that she ended uh, some of the things she said near the end of her campaign ad is that she was never afraid to stand up to bullies. So I think I'd like to see more of that in the debate to see how she actually managed to stand up to Donald Trump whenever he was committing all those acts, right? Uh, especially internationally uh, uh, in the Middle East and all that stuff, right? Uh, he allowed American troops to get killed when he withdrew. Uh, from uh, you know uh, the t- Turkish side, uh, so that uh, Erdogan's troops could actually uh, seize territory against the Kurdish uh, populations there. So um, I do think that it's going to be an interesting field. Obviously, it's a horse race. The American horse race tends to be a lot longer. Um, I do think that Nikki Haley, it's too early for her. She even announced a day earlier than expected on Valentine's Day at 6.48 a.m. on Twitter, which I found, like, not even people is, in is on the married? east side. Is she married? Cause that, that I think be a, so. Because that'd be a, one, a funny Valentine's Day gift to her husband. Like, what the hell? So um, I was a bit surprised by that because um, um, her campaign had released a week before that she's planning to announce on February 15th. Well, way to go. Um, but uh, during the American elections um, earlier candidates tend to not perform as well maybe initially with fundraising and getting some zingers during debates but you look at Kamala Harris you look at uh, Elizabeth Warren they both announced really early and suffered as a result of that Uh, Jeb Bush on the Republican side Scott Walker um, it was rumored that uh, Paul Ryan would also uh, enter the race. Um, in fact, he came out, uh, it was reported yesterday that uh, he will uh, not join the Republican Party's GOP events if Donald Trump becomes the nominee again. So I think that may be a way of him indirectly hinting that he's going to enter the race. I do think he's ambitious enough to put a stop to Donald Trump. Uh, keep in mind that he was a speaker for a short time when Don, uh, Donald Trump was president. Yes. And he looked miserable every time. <laughs> uh, so I do think that's going to be uh, quite interesting to see. Your prediction about Donald Trump versus um, Governor uh, DeSantis. Yeah. Uh, he's already, Donald Trump has already started attacking 
the Santos action. Ron is sanctimonious. Yes. Yes. I think it's a stupid way to call him. Yeah. I think uh, Ron disaster is better. Actually, <laughs> uh, it's funnier. Or if in, in Nikki Haley's case, Ricky and Nikki. <laughs> that sounds like an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> but, but keep in mind, uh, Sleepy Joe, uh, Low Energy Jeb, uh, Little Marco, they stuck. Yes. Because it's funny too, right? Crooked Hillary, all of them. Yes. So You are uh, basing an adjective after a nickname. Yeah. Yeah. Or before a nickname. Um, and that's what branding is all about in people's minds, right? Um, especially those who are undecided, but, you know, leaning. It changes their minds um, even more. Yes. And if there's one thing Trump is good at, it's marketing. That's his entire yeah. business. Absolutely. That's his entire career. That's why I think that um, Ron DeSantis will lose momentum. Since Trump will, has already started attacking the shit out of him. <laughs> uh, and it's going to go on. And that's what he did to Jeb Bush, if you, if you remember. He did the same thing to Marco Rubio in uh, 2016 during the primaries. Uh, he did the same thing. Well, Rand Paul didn't have much of a chance. Another person who, from South Carolina who will likely announce sometime soon is Tim Scott. He's the uh, African-American senator. Um, the Republicans, though, this day have not had uh, an African-American nominee. So they're probably trying to push Tim Scott to show the di- how much diversity the party as even though it would be a tokenist uh, type of approach, he seems Not like true. he seems like more the type of person who end up as a VP pick. I'm going to be mm. honest. Like, not not to take anything away from him. Yeah, it just seems it like Kamala, if she's a VP pick as well. Yes, it just seems like that's the way that politics tends to go. Mm. Where if if someone of, of color doesn't perform very well in the in the actual election, pick as a VP pick. If, especially if they're a competent person otherwise. Mm. Yes. By the way, speaking of South Carolina, a really interesting candidate is Congresswoman Nancy Mace. I do think she's a, a potential star. Um, I do think she said she's not interested in running because uh, she, she, she touts that the last time someone from Congress became president was Abraham Lincoln. So I'm not sure if that's accurate. Wait, wait from Congress or yeah. from what? Obama is from Congress. House of Representatives. Oh, House of Representatives. Okay. Right. It's my bad. Yeah. No. So, um, the Congress has two houses, just like the uh, federal yeah. parliament in Canada. I'm running it back in my head. Uh, <laughs> Clinton was governor. Uh, Bush was VP. Uh, Arkansas. Uh, yes. Uh, Reagan was just an actor. Well, no, uh, he was the governor later oh, he, on, but he ran three times. Yes. Uh, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, was the governor of Michigan. And he was he ran twice. He was originally planning to run in '64, but he he decided not to because he knew he would lose. Mm. And he let Barry Goldwater run instead. Mm. But again, Barry Goldwater uh, lost because it was after Nixon, uh, not Nixon, after uh, after Kennedy's death. So everyone knew the Democrats were going to win that election. Uh, well, I, don't, well, something to mention about that though. During the JFK time, the South was democratic. Yes. So it's uh, really trends have intertwined, right? Um, so I do think that um, on a democratic side, getting the South is possible. But if you have someone like Barack Obama, I don't think it will be possible. I'm running it through my head now. I'd only, the only uh, really person I don't know how what they did beforehand was Jimmy Carter. Mm. I know he was a peanut farmer, but I don't know if he was in politics <laughs> beforehand or, or after that. 
Um, we all will wish uh, Jimmy Carter uh, a, a great recovery because uh, he's been, uh, even though he was a one-term president, I think he's someone who was underappreciated historically. Uh, he's... He was really, really adamant in terms of promoting peace throughout the world. Yes. And uh, we need more of those types of people right now, even though at the time it wasn't popular. He was also a very bizarre Democrat because mm. people don't know this. He was deeply, deeply religious. He still is. Yes. He taught Sunday yeah. school in the White House. Like the yeah. first person to do that. And like basically since him, it's never been done. And he was the first person to do it since like the 1920. Right. Yes. And he started a lot of trends and he was basically the, the compromise democrat where a lot of republicans at the time still liked him like he was still big with the business community the republican business community and everything yeah well um this, he was probably liked in the south as well uh but uh, speaking about jimmy carter he's also uh the one who's very vocal about having embargoes against countries like north korea and uh, cuba particularly in cuba's case he says it doesn't help because the people already there are already being uh, mistreated by their current dictator uh, government. And if we have more sanctions against them, more embargoes in terms of trade, it's just helping them have that mindset already against the United States rather than like the United States. Um, and it's, you know, having uh, trade with those countries actually makes their lives better. Yes. Right. Assuming that that's gonna there, there's some questionable logic to that because mm -hmm. of China and what we know there. Mm -hmm. But it is uh, full disclosure. I am generally a liberal thinker where I believe in business is good, and I'm big on the idea of international trade and how. So it, you're the typical capitalist, huh? Basically, I'm <laughs> I'm probably being best described as neoliberal. I'm going to be quite honest. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren actually uh, recently said, I'm quite a capitalist. Actually, during the 2020 primaries, she was saying that too. Honestly, don't remember because it's been a long time since I've seen the footage. But uh, it would surprise me if she considers herself that. She, a lot of people in, uh, in American politics generally don't question the importance of capitalism. Okay, so just to move on, our next topic, which is the train disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, in the United States of America. Particularly how the Biden administration is handling this affair, really. And uh, so just to give a little context, um, about uh, more than 20 days ago, there was a huge train crash causing an environmental spillage in the uh, hypes of uh, residents who live in East Palestine. One thing to notate that's really important in this conversation is uh, not only is it just going to impact, you know, drinking water, but it's also going to have long-term uh, effects on children as well in that area. And um, what's really uh, interesting to see right now is how there's quite a politicization of the situation. So... Um, in 2020, it was heavy Trump country by double digits. I'm not sure who President Biden's listening to, but um, he didn't visit the so, area. Uh, so on this topic, there's, it's been a little bit of a controversy, especially about the media, mm. where the truth is this, this, this sort of disaster happened at a truly awful time for media coverage, especially for national media. Cause it, what do you mean? it coincided with the, uh, with the State of the Union. That's when it happened. So what happened is the media had all the stuff from the State of the Union to discuss. 
And what ended up happening is that was a 48-hour news cycle. Well, so was George Santos on the news, by the way. Exactly. He still is. Yes. But <laughs> as well, immediately after the, uh, the State of the Union was the, the Chinese balloon scandal. Yes. So, yes. so what ended up happening is that had international repercussions. So what always happens with those stories is they take the front page. It's 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 just the way the news media works. And after so basically that was forty eight hours of the State of the Union, forty eight hour news cycle of the uh, of the balloon scandal, and then after that the governor gave the all clear, which basically meant for news media, national news media it was a dead story. It's unfortunate, but that's what happened. Uh, if you look at it in local media, it was very well covered. Mm. But now we're learning that the all clear was probably not true. It was probably a mis, uh, a bad test result. And now we're starting to see it more in the news. So this definitely should have been talked about more. And I'm glad it's being talked about now. Yeah, It's one of those unfortunate realities that happened at the worst possible time for news coverage. Well, I think it also got bigger attention because uh, Donald Trump, who's campaigning in that area, visited the area. Like you said, it's Trump country. Right. So he recently went, literally a few days ago, you know, he he brought, uh, well, not him, but his campaign brought bottles of water, which was drinkable water that's actually needed. Yes. Right. Um, And, you know, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary for Biden's administration, um, only landed literally three days ago. Right. So and three days, that is February 22nd. And then he did say it was pretty accurate of him to say state this, that the investigation is still ongoing. So I can't really comment on much, yeah. um, but at least he was uh, a figure to listen to the folks over there. Yeah. And uh, also at the same time, uh, there was a CNN town hall where the Ohio governor, uh, uh, Governor DeWine, was uh, heavily questioned by the residents of East Palestine. Um, but how do you think the Biden administration is actually handling this, Matthew? Uh, this is the weird things where I think definitely Biden should have handled it better. He should have sent. Mm. I'm not sure if uh, so. Pete Buttigieg should have been there on the ground, but I'm not sure if he's the right person for this because this technically is a transport issue. Yeah. But it's also an environmental issue, so it's sort of like is it an environmental issue? I mean, uh, leak leak chemicals is normally uh, EPA and stuff like that, right? So. Um, the sec- would that be the secretary of uh, the environment? Yes, uh, probably. Or the it energy. It, that's the thing. It's it mixes between multiple people, so it's one of those things where uh, Biden is in a weird position right now because he had a pre-scheduled a diplomatic tour, right? And that's the really weird thing where, for him to go to East Palestine, he would need to cancel meetings with the German Chancellor and Zelensky. Uh, Japanese uh, prime minister and a whole bunch of other people. Mm. So it's it's really unfortunate timing, and definitely Biden administration should have done more. It, it's one of those things where I think they didn't realize how how big this would get in terms of the disaster and the questions, because the governor seemed to have it under control on first, mm. and I think a lot of the blame does go on on the ri- original handling of it, where. The, the governor probably should have it's a, like explained to the Biden or called for more help from the Biden administration. Got them more, uh, got them involved earlier. Well, actually, just to give a little context, the Ohio governor was offering thousand uh, dollar rebates to each resident, which I don't think is enough for what? really for the damage caused. And then uh, it obviously is not the right approach. I think he should have been honest right away, but at the same time, his hands are sort of tied because. It it does go to transportation and uh, energy. So the 
Secretary of Transportation is uh, Pete Buttigieg, and the Secretary of Energy is uh, Jennifer Granholm. And Jennifer Granholm was um, on Biden's uh, campaign team, by the way, and she was the former Michigan governor. Uh, and I think uh, I, I personally like her a lot, the way she talks uh, during uh, uh, any uh, panel shows. Um, I do think she would have handled it better. She would have verbalized and articulated. Um, but I, I think Pete's approach, uh, Secretary Pete's approach, was also good. They didn't need someone to talk shop, but uh, really just to listen. I'm not sure if you noticed something. Have you noticed mm-hmm. people Jay get stuck with all the bad, all the recently, uh, yeah, the shit job. with the airline stuff, the, too. the airlines, <laughs> the the East Palestine stuff. Yeah, yeah. You go back. There was the uh, the. Uh, the what's called and the the convoy ships they were all stuck, yes. locked up mm. <laughs> stuck with all of the bad all the shit jobs well right now yeah and uh, i have to admit uh, i've never seen a secretary of transportation gain this much exposure and it's Here not I- a good exposure Unless you believe Madonna when she said bad PR is good PR. I mean his name is in the news. That's something <laughs> like that's definitely gonna help yeah. him at some point in the future. Absolutely. Yes. But I do think that uh, he visited uh, either Pete Buttigieg uh, or Biden uh, I do think optics matter and politics, especially uh, just showing up. Uh, you know, you could you could criticize George W. Bush for not even visiting Hurricane Katrina, and he was just looking down from his plane. Um, the same way uh, you would criticize someone for not at all showing up, even if it's an uh, atmospheric view. So um, I, I do think uh, it should have been. Uh, the visits should have been much, much earlier. Yes. Uh, just to offer guidance, I, no I'm, matter if they're Trump supporters or Biden supporters. Yes. I'm a little forgiving of Biden not showing up himself again because the diplomatic issues where he, he had diplomatic uh, he didn't have meetings already scheduled and all that stuff. And you don't want to cancel on a world leader. That's understandable. But he, maybe he could cut a little short and like made some time. But I do think his administration should like definitely Kamala Harris. Where is she? I know, right? Yes. She, she's her job is literally to be acting president when Joe Biden's not there. Well, whenever he gets his colonoscopy, which was last week, apparently, she does take over that role. Yes, that, <laughs> that, that is true. That happens with almost every president. Yeah, yeah. That happened with George Bush at one point. Uh, his vice president just randomly. Well, that's a job, right? Yeah. It, it, <laughs> that's basically the main job. For an hour or two, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, all in all to say, uh, it's. Uh, I, I don't think the Biden administration's uh, communications team is handling this situation well at all. Um, is, uh, even though voters tend to have amnesia during election times, um, it's still going to impact how people in Ohio view the Biden administration. So, uh, Ohio was pretty much a swing state in 2012, if you remember. Yeah, I think it was the only swing state that determined who would be the president till. 2016. Yes. 2020, it changed. 20, 2016, it was hard Trump. Mm. In 2020, it was hard Trump. And I do believe it's going to go Republican in 2024. Yeah, I think the landscape's changed significantly. It's, it's very much the the Trump the Trump uh, base changed the Republican Party in a way. A lot more union voters have switched to Republican. It's I'm seeing it sort of like a 1970s, 80s shakeup in United States politics where mm. It, the South, uh, the South uh, East used to be big Democrats, and now it's big Republican. I can see that happening again, where maybe the Rust Belt's trending more Republican, and maybe the Sun Belt is trending more Democrat. Um, the big, the big question is Georgia, which I think Georgia it's still very much a 
Republican-lean state. You could say that, but also in the last Senate race, it was yes. a Democratic I, 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 that's why It was I, very close. That's why I say lean. Yeah. Not, it's not a solid, like Alabama is still solid. I, I would consider Georgia as actually a purple state. It's a swing state. Uh, I don't think it's Arizona the same thing. My, my concern is that Stacey Abrams spent close to $100 million mm. in the governor's race. It never was. The first time or second time? The second time. Mm. But from almost $100 million running in Georgia, she did not lead one single poll yeah. in the entirety of the race. That was a little surprising, but she's also, uh, I don't know, she but, she mishandled but here's the, the mask thing. situation. On the Senate, the, uh, I'm, I can't remember, like, I Warnick, Warnock. So Raphael Warnock, Raphael Warnock. Raphael he's a reverend Warnock. with a PhD. Yes, actually, he, he worked for the same uh, church that Martin Luther King worked at. Yes, that's yes. true. And he led... Casey Abrams in every single poll. Yeah. Like he should have been running for governor. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think the, uh, okay. So just to give a little bit of information, um, Canadian elections, you're voting for one person for one position, unless it's the local slash municipal elections where you have multiple positions to vote for. American elections are always like that. Multiple uh, people on a ballot, multiple uh, laws that, that are initiatives, like marijuana tends to be one of them. Florida actually in 2020 made it uh, a $15 minimum, uh, dollar minimum wage legal. Yes. Which is surprising for a heavy red state, right? Uh, I'm, in 2020. I still think Florida is not a red state. I think it's a purple state. I think mm. Democrats have forgotten how to campaign in Florida. I think Democrats have forgotten the campaign generally in terms yes. of messaging. So Florida's the type of state where you don't win the Florida on national issues. You win on local issues. It's very much a, you need to campaign in Florida for Floridian issues, in my opinion. That's what yeah, I think any uh, election has to be 50% national or federal and 50% local. Yes. I, I, in terms I, of messaging. For example, if you look at the 22 uh, midterms, mm. the Santas didn't really have any opposition. People were talking yeah. about how, how badly Democrats did, but and how great the Santas did. He had no opposition. No one even knew the name of the uh, Democratic candidate. I disagree with you there. Charlie Crist is a former governor there. He switched from Republican to Democrat. And he's run so many times for governor. Uh, he also ran for Senate. He switched parties to endorse Biden. Uh, and Hillary. Um, so, and, and th there were a lot of never Trump or Republicans too, that, that, you know, John Kasich, governor, former governor of Ohio is one of them. Um, but going back to uh, the notion of messaging for Democrats versus Republicans, you see a great example in the East Palestine uh, case. Uh, whereas Republicans, let's say in Florida, Georgia, Virginia, even the governor races, they focus more on catering to parents about school choice. Yes, right. Uh, an issue that people were not a, wasn't at all on any radar, other than local media covering it. Right. Uh, so uh, school choice being that parents should have a bigger say in what their kids are learning. That's what decided the Virginia governor race. That's also. right. It went heavily red, even though Biden campaigned over there. So. Um, Messaging is everything. Ain't that right, Matthew? Yes. It's very much need to be local. Local issues decide local elections. Alrighty. So with that in mind, let's talk about the balloon saga and the United States very quickly. So uh, a fourth balloon was spotted in Moldova not too long ago. It wasn't in the U.S. territory. So 
Biden came out and said that there's no evidence that it's China behind it. And uh, there was this growing movement in the States, especially on social media, that it could be UFOs visiting us, aliens. And uh, Biden's press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, had to literally tell the American public that it's not aliens you know, visiting us. Do you know what's funny? Those entire rumors were created by the History Channel, like people. Because <laughs> literally, the people from the History Channel went mm-hmm. on like Fox News, MSNBC, and all of them. And they were talking about, oh, it could be UFOs. We haven't seen any conclusive evidence that it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's actually funny because it's the History Channel doing a viral promotion. Right? Yes. About nothing historic. Yes. <laughs> but um, basically, the Biden's mission is to make clear it's not, it's not alien UFOs. Mm-hmm. It's it's some sort of uh, satellite balloon, or not satellite, uh, um, observation balloon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't fully know why. I've, I've heard analysis saying that uh, the way this is, the reason why it's done is because uh, a lot of radar systems don't catch this type of stuff because you only know, the civilian type balloons. But the way it's working is they change their radars and they start noticing them now. So it's possible this could be years in the making. But it's, it's unknown. Our information is too limited at the moment, so we can't know. You actually think it might be aliens? No. Okay. I never Just checking. <laughs> I so, wish it was. That so would be, that would I, I think it was the second or the third balloon. It came on Canadian territory in the Yukon area. And then uh, uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had to ask uh, the Biden administration to shoot it down. Uh, but what's interesting is the first response. It took the Biden administration, I believe, 21 days to shoot it down, even though it went over uh, areas like Montana and the Midwest where inter uh, ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, are based, yes. which is quite a uh, different uh, context compared to just visiting. On a monopoly board. Yes. You know what I mean? So from my understanding here, it was because of the lack of water. Mm-hmm. So what happened is... For the uh, balloon, you mean? No, no. Uh, so basically, if you shoot down a balloon over land, mm-hmm. you don't know where it's going to fall. But yeah, you know, so that was the hesitation. Yes. At least that's the excuse they gave, but I, I find that hard to believe. It, it could be. It could also be they just didn't know what it was, mm-hmm. and they wanted to make sure it wasn't civilian. <laughs> yeah, but imagine- 21 days? Come yeah. on, dude. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where... I get the feeling we're not getting told everything because yeah, it's classified. 100%. So it's one of those things where we can't really know why. I think the water makes a little bit of sense, mm. but that can't be the only reason. But if it's not the Chinese, who would it be? Russia, maybe, but I don't even think. I, I think Russia's a little too busy. Yeah. And I don't think... It could be a Russian MO in terms of the Cold, uh, the cold War that was happening in the 80s. Yeah. Because it looks pretty like old technology, if I'm being frank. But um, I, I do think that uh, China is a better suspect because of their constant uh, willingness to test the yeah. uh, United States. Yeah. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, China is actively looking into invading Taiwan. So they're seeing how the U.S. and the globe, the other the Western countries, respond to the Ukraine war. Right. Yes. So before they attack Taiwan, they're literally seeing what Russia is doing and losing badly. At the yes. Uh, the problem with that is uh, the Russian sanctions are not as effective as they would be against China because Russia is self-sufficient on food and energy. The two things you need to survive. Mm. China is neither self-sufficient, either one of them. If, if China faced Russian style sanctions, they would have food shortages. 
And that's the big issue that often doesn't get talked about. But they would literally have energy and food shortages. And in a country of a billion people, uh, having food shortages is going to be a lot worse for mm. China. Uh, because that's when we break down, civilization breaks down. Well, don't forget, China is much, much better in terms of building stuff. Yes. Like during the COVID uh, crises, uh, they built hospitals, I, I believe, in 15 days, uh, which is very unprecedented. Um, but China was also the cause of COVID spreading initially, right? They kept secret about this whole entire ordeal. You can blame the Trump administration for that, too, for not acting fast enough, right? Or any other administration for that matter. But truly, it came from China, let's be honest. Honestly, I wouldn't blame Trump or Biden administration. For, I, I think it's one of those things where it's, mm. such, it's, such, a, it's such an unprecedented thing. Mm. Uh, so, for example, the U.S. didn't actually have a strategy for dealing with a pandemic until Bush Jr. Mm. Because, uh, funny enough, Bush Jr. read a book about the Spanish flu and asked his advisor, what's our plan if this happens again? And his advisors came back and said, we have no plan. Well, I, interestingly enough, the uh, Bill Gates actually in 2017 and 18 uh, made uh, quite a few uh, event stops where he talked about the future pandemic and our preparedness. Yeah, in other words, the lack of it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the signs were pretty much there. It's just that you needed competent people. Now, uh, the Biden administration, especially with Joe Biden at its helm, handled the pandemic very differently. And I think more responsibly, right? Whereas the Trump administration, they were very reactionary, I would say. They didn't, they constantly denied it. You know, you, you can blame Trump for all of those mishaps, which I certainly do, right? Here, here's my But point. what Donald Trump did was Operation Warp Speed. So he, he uh, I, and I'm not sure if it was actually him or Mike Pence, because technically he appointed Mike Pence to be at the helm of the COVID task force. But um, there were heavy investments to rush the research on coming up with a COVID vaccine. Uh, but overall, in terms of uh, competence and overall performance to stop the spread, uh, I do believe that uh, Trump did not do as good of a job as Joe Biden. Generally speaking, when you compare uh, the, the COVID responses for different countries, mm -hmm. it starts, like, especially when you do like the analysis, when you, when you include things like geographic location, so, for example, New Zealand was always in the best location because they're literally an island. If you ever played the yeah. game uh, Plague Inc., you know, New Zealand is awful and so is Madagascar. <laughs> so, when you compare that, you realize very quickly big countries that are like, that are very like century located, like United States, where we have a lot of uh, uh, urban areas, as well as the European, they were never going to have a good time with this type of virus where closed spaces cause a lot of problems. So, that's why I don't blame the, the U.S. government as much as other people, just because a lot of other countries did poorly also for, and they've been more of an active response. Mm. So, for example, uh, the best country in Europe generally is sense to be Sweden, but that's because of a cultural difference, where the way Sweden works is they have, actually, they had a constitutional provision preventing them from having lockdowns. It's a weird thing in their constitution, but because the Swedes are tend to follow government direction more, they didn't need the lockdowns and they had lower mortality rate because people followed directions with masks and all that stuff more. But if you look for something like the UK, they had a hard time um, closing pubs. I'm not even joking. This was, you can look this up. There was actually like footage of parliament for a, of a law passed under Boris Johnson passing to uh, uh, closing pubs for COVID. 
So what ends up happening in this is that uh, the bill almost failed because the conservative party broke. Party unity broke down over this bill and it almost failed. So what ends up happening is you see this a lot where very different countries have very different response and it was still bad in most of them. So this week also has been quite a uh, an interesting episode and rather uh, either the government response on the Canadian side of federal versus provincial with regards to uh, refugees, asylum seekers, particularly to the Roxham Road, which is located at the south of the Quebec province. Quebec First Minister Premier François Legault started to bring this issue to the forefront, even though Justin Trudeau has had since 2018, actually, that he's uh, vowed to address. It's very interesting how five years already passed by since then, actually. Right? Yeah. So, um, François Legault released a letter in English in the Globe and Mail on Monday. And then ever since, it's his uh, communications team is very coordinated in the number of appearances and messaging. You'll notice that sometimes. Legault yeah. is very nationalistic, French nationalistic, mm. but he never misses an opportunity to release something in English to affront his political enemies. That and also, I think he's really playing the media game very well. He's got a really good team behind him. Yes. Um, and uh, he's even gotten Pierre Poliev, the um, federal conservative uh, leader of, uh, of the Conservative Party of Canada, literally supporting him on this and going on the offense against Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau announced that he's foreclosing the Roxham Road after a discussion with the United States. And actually, yesterday, Washington announced that they're not interested in revisiting the subject just yet. So what do you think is going to happen? At this point, well, generally, Canada has a very open policy with refugees. Mm-hmm. But Canada doesn't accept refugees from the United States. Mm-hmm. We consider it a safe country. True to Trump years, there was some jokes about making of refugees from the United States, but it was never serious. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen with these people if they're just going to get deported or... Right now... Remember, if you remember from 2021, the Legault government uh, actually announced a support to conservatives O'Toole at the time. Mm. And it seems very much like they're continuing down that that route where they're going to, in the next election, which is probably going to be in a year, year and a half, they're going to support uh, conservatives again on in politics and try to convince their voters to vote conservative. Well, what's really interesting are the numbers with regards to asylum seekers in Canada. So just to give a little idea, we've had an increase ever since 2019. So with regards to the year 2020, there was an increase of 7.33%. In terms of refugees, that number is 109,000. And then in 2021, uh, it's got a 19.15% increase, which was around 130,000 people. So it's is it fair to say that we've had uh, an increase of asylum seekers in Canada ever since 2019? I mean, based on numbers, that's pretty obvious. But, right? but uh, the question is why? Uh, it could be the increase in uh, in general migrants since Biden's taken over, which mm. uh, the Economist ran a great article about this uh, about a year ago, mm. where they discussed how at the beginning of Biden's uh, presidency, uh, there was basically clips going around the internet, basically saying that uh, Biden would be uh, more lenient than uh, than right. Trump. But this was a, a 
basically just internet clips that became memes in a lot of Latin American countries. So it, it actually did cause a material increase in uh, refugee claims at the southern border. Uh, but I think also the subject that does come up, especially in the United States, with uh, ICE and uh, deportations, whether or not we deport these asylum seekers or we keep them. And I think that's why the Quebec pre Premier, François Legault, was quite adamant to making uh, this a forefront issue. Um, it's because uh, Quebec's having a hard time logistically to handle all these seekers yes. um, and accommodating them. You know, uh, immigration is always a tough issue to tackle because it's not one-fold either federal jurisdiction or it's also not just provincial, it's both. Especially in Quebec, where Quebec's been a mm. long time wanting more control over immigration. Mm. Yeah. And it, there's been a lot of discussion that going back 20, 30 years. Mm. And uh, what's interesting also, we do have a labor shortage still. So I would think both uh, governments of uh, François Legault and Justin Trudeau could have a better compromise rather than closing Roxham Road. I'm for having skilled workers, and I do think that uh, with training and development, these asylum seekers could work. Uh, but to say that it's only from Roxham Road is very ignorant. What about those folks who are coming by plane? In fact, that was actually the talk in the... Uh, by Donald Trump, actually. he I, I don't like to bring him up all the time, but he talked about his infamous wall. I mean, the wall isn't the only way. People don't just uh, come by and seek asylum by foot. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. What about those folks who are coming in quotations on vacation and end up staying here for a while? Yeah. What about them? Uh, what are we doing to monitor that? Right? So I do think it becomes... Um, it's just being talked about on the Roxham road front rather than, you know, having a bigger picture conversation about immigration, right? Yeah, exactly. Speaking about labor shortage, let's talk about, uh, since we are political and business strategists, let's talk about how businesses are going to work in the current environment with inflation. So just for those who are not sure about what inflation is, care to enlighten everybody? So inflation in the most simplest terms is when the the price in a is the price in in a certain currency mm. the price of goods go up. Mm. Yes. So for example, say uh, say you have one item that costs one dollar, uh, it goes to one ten, that is inflation. It is normally calculated in the form of CPI, which is the uh, consumer price index. Mm. And this is generally calculated through a basket in quotation marks uh, of goods based on the average consumption of people in a country. Mm. So this is calculated differently in every country, but it's generally based on the average consumption with slight differences. Like some countries include housing, other countries only include rent, uh, but not house like uh, purchasing. And some countries can include used cars and new cars, and some countries only include some types of cars. So it, it really depends on every country's different definition, but it's generally very similar calculations across with the goal being to get an average cost of living. Fair point. Um, what are really the causes of inflation, though? Well, what would you say? The funny story is I work in logistics and I mm. see firsthand the import costs. Right. So, uh, for example, before the uh, before the pandemic, the average price of a container coming from Asia to North America was about two thousand USD, uh, two thousand US dollars. During COVID, the price of a container peaked from about twenty five thousand US dollars. Literally, 
uh, 12, 13 times more expensive. And if you want to know why there was so much inflation in the second half of COVID, that's why. It's it's insane. You look at this and just like, there was genuine like genuine like shortages of containers. Mm. There was so much pent up demand from COVID. And it's luckily going down now. Uh, the average cost of containers in North America costs three, four thousand dollars. Mm. So it's down from its peak, but still about double what it was pre-COVID. Right. Which which does lead to the example of uh, the the fact that it, there is this inflation if you look at the numbers. Mm. So um in terms of inflation by country, uh, U.S. actually is quite the same. Uh, it's gone from 6.5 to 6.4%. But down from like a 9% peak. No, no. For, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, uh, the, say, uh, yeah, that's pretty obvious. It's going downwards, right? Not upwards. Uh, in Canada, uh, from 6.3, we've gone to 5.9 in the month of January of 2023. A lot of politicians, uh, the way they kind of absolve themselves from responsibility or even effectiveness is when they say that inflation isn't an issue we should talk about because it's a world, it's a global issue. That pisses me off because as a voter, it affects me on a daily basis. Groceries, gas, you know, business. Uh, consumer confidence. We talked about consumer spending before. Well, if you don't have enough disposable income, that's money left after you've paid your bills, then you're not likely to spend as a consumer to contribute to your economy in the first place. Um, and to say that it's a global issue, needs to be much more relative, I would say, because if you look at countries like Argentina, inflation's going higher. 90 from 94% to 99%. Be careful with Argentina. Argentina has had high inflation on and off mm. for like in the last 50 years. Yeah, but it's still the, the case, right? Um, so Turkey is at what, like three, 400? Well, Ukraine is another one too, by the way. But uh, Turkey has gone downwards from 65 to 57%, I believe. Uh, Russia, well, we all know that Russia uh, has different reasons for it. But let's go back to the main reason. Uh, one of the most primary reasons is government handling and also how uh, consumers respond uh, and the supply and chain responds to what consumers want and need. Uh, so by that, I mean, if we are not producing enough, we are not going to meet what people, how much people want said supply, okay? So uh, as a result, uh, obviously the pandemic sort of exacerbated it, but also it encouraged increase online uh, realm of uh, doing business. Um, whenever you have a lack of imports coming in, it does affect regionally, right? Especially if you don't have much domestic product production in that uh, sector, let's say, lumber, agriculture, things like that. So prices are going to jump uh, jump up. But um, I believe it was uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter in uh, California who actually said that corporate greed is another reason why that leads to inflation. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's economically literate. <laughs> and I think okay. that's, pure, that's purely like a political, a political talking point. I'm not going to... How so? I know this is an unpopular opinion because people like to talk about evil corporations, but the way inflation works is, say you have uh, 10 items. So say you have 10 apples. Mm. 
10 people want an apple. And so they want an apple. So that's either supply and demand is equal in that rate. Now remove one apple. There's now nine apples and 10 people. So what's going to happen is price of all nine apples are going to go up. So one person no longer wants to pay for an apple. So what ends up happening is you have 10% towards the supply in this, in this uh, situation. So prices go up until the one person is willing to drop out. Mm. And yes, that does increase profit margins. I'm not going to deny that that 100% does. But the alternative is you keep prices the same when you have empty shelves. So basically, I've only for, it's a rush to get there. So you want an apple, you have to rush to the store to get it. And it's it, you sort of saw this with toilet paper in COVID, where uh, right. you had empty shelves because there was just was not enough goods, so prices went up. Although, or, or they couldn't go up, I should say. Because toilet paper is well, regulated it's, good. Okay, so, but don't forget, that was also a event panic. Yes. So uh, basically, it was consumer panic yes. to an extreme rate, uh, which caused everyone to overspend on yes. paper towels, yes. thereby reducing supply of it. Yes. So basically, demand suddenly sugar went up. Like we didn't have any uh, lack of other uh, than paper towel. We didn't uh, do that for condoms. And there actually was a buy in condoms because people used them in, in place of rubber gloves. Um, no, no, but the, we didn't have such an emergency with condoms or tampons. Yeah, but my point is just that <laughs> when, when people uh, suddenly buy, mm. you're left with two options, either allow for empty shelves or raise prices. I think it, uh, so I sort of agree with uh, that comment that it's corporate greed. And I don't agree. I agree with the analogy you made in terms of explaining supply and demand. But I also think whenever you're supplying 10 or 9 apples, it depends who is providing those apples. So it depends on the industry you operate in. So say you have three major companies providing those 10 apples versus you have 10 companies providing an apple each. There will be a, quite a price differ, a difference. If you have more companies selling 10 apples, there will be much more competition on prices. Yes. Whereas if you're much more in an oligopolistic industry with only two or three, like Amazon and Shopify, let's say, um, if you only have those giants, then they can set whatever prices they want, which is, I think, what she was alluding to. The point, but the problem is they're making this argument for things like eggs. The problem with eggs right now is specifically... There was a, a big issue with uh, with bird flu last year. Mm, yep. Yes. They had, I think, something like 20% of the fl American flock had to be put down. Mm. Well, here too, by the way, in Canada. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what ends up happening in that case is you can't, you have to take eggs and not sell them because you need to repopulate your flock. So you already have 20% less egg production. Then you're holding back another 20% to repopulate. You're down 40% of supply. And that's across all companies. Even if you have three companies producing eggs, they had they can magically produce more eggs because they they need to actually repopulate. There's actually, funny enough, a biblical quote about this. Never, it, it's actually funny. So never, it's never, I never kill your chicken and eat the egg because you can't replace the chicken. I guess so. Even though there are so many chickens, yeah, there, right. Uh, technically, we eat chicken, so yes. they, they need to be replaced somehow. That's actually why chicken prices stayed relatively low in the mm. last year, because they had to put down so many chickens and push down, push up supply. Oh, yeah, because of the flu, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, which seems to be common, uh, a very reoccurring issue, by the way.
So uh, that's it for our first episode, folks. This is The Bottom Line, News and Views. I'm Eddie. And I'm Matthew. Until next time.